As many of you know, I, along with about 11 other people, sat in a dunk tank at our community fair yesterday with people throwing balls at us to try to make us fall into a tub of water. Of course, it was all in good fun, and I really had a great time. Only in Asia do you have such a kind community where they will tell you sorry after they dunk you. I told a few of my American friends that they were in shock. As, in fact, while I was kind of uh, watching and observing the others who were being dunked, I noticed that very few people attempted to dunk Attorney Gabriel D. I think it's because they were afraid of being sued. Uh, that being said, uh, it was also interesting to watch as so many lined up to dunk my good friend Mark T. I think they wanted to see a tsunami. I'm not sure. <laughs> but you know, uh, prior to this, I received an anonymous note. And I don't put a lot of credence to anonymous notes, but I got this and I want to share with our congregation that uh, said that I shouldn't be in the dunk tank because I'm a pastor and it would lower their respect of me if I was involved in such a thing. Of course, I respect their opinion, but I thought to myself, what in the world does a dunk tank have anything to do with who I am as a pastor and how I pastor? And so with full conscience, uh, without any issue to it, I went ahead and did it and had a wonderful time. But that letter got me to think uh, a bit about how we worship God. What determines the worth of the worship of the living God as it relates to us? I think for many people, we worship God based on what He has done for us, based on if He has lived up to the expectation of how we think He should treat us. We worship Him only when we remember, and we often only remember when He has answered our prayers in accordance with our will. But what motivates us to worship God when He does things that in our minds doesn't seem very, quote-unquote, God-like? What if He does things in not answering our prayers in accordance with our will, but according to His perfect will, and we don't agree with it? Do we still worship Him? What if He hasn't given us anything lately in our own minds? What if He hasn't done anything for me lately? then for many of us, we don't see any reason really to worship Him. That's why for many, when we talk about worship, it's something we do once a week for an hour at the church, in the sanctuary, or in the fellowship hall. For many, if I were to ask you about worship, whether you'll honestly answer me or not, it is for you a dreaded obligation, something you have to come to. It's boring, honestly. You see, sadly, we have turned worship about me. If I were to ask you a series of questions about what is your worship experience, both corporately and individually, perhaps you would reply to me, well, the worship is sometimes something I can engage in. It engages me. Or sometimes it bores me. Sometimes I learn something. Sometimes I remember a funny story. Sometimes my mind wanders. Sometimes I remember a lesson learned but many times I fall asleep. Sometimes I'm reading the scriptures with an active mind. Oftentimes I'm just surfing the internet on my phone. And when you are asked about your worship experience, a lot of you have opinions, often critical, about what has just happened. I want you to notice how you respond to the question, what is your worship experience like? 
there's a lot of I's and a lot of me's. Because somehow we have taken worship and made it about how we feel about it. The spiritual discipline of worship is more than just a one-time event once a week where you are the critic and you have the opportunity to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down depending on how you feel you experience the worship of the Lord God based on perhaps what He's done for you lately. It's so much more. It's because we don't practice worship the way the Bible tells us we are to worship that we often place ourselves, even in worship of the living God, ourselves as number one and God second, how we feel more than how God feels. And so we want to correct this through God's Word. And so I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29, we're going to take a look at verses 10 to 20, as we learn from one of the best worship leaders in the person of King David. And so we continue this morning our sermon series entitled, Not First, Daily practicing spiritual disciplines to remind me of my place in this world. If you're new to the Bible, the book of First Chronicles is in the Old Testament. It follows First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then we get to First Chronicles. First Chronicles, chapter 29. From these verses, I want to extrapolate an overriding principle, and then six expressions of worship. Now, as you're turning to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, by way for you to understand the background of what is taking place, David is wanting to build now a temple for the Lord. He has a heart for God, and he wants to build the most beautiful temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. But the Lord doesn't allow him. He will give that privilege to David's son, Solomon. But David wants to do something, and so the Lord gives David a task. Short of actually building the temple, the Lord asks that David gather all of the supplies needed for the temple construction. Now, I want to ask you something. When you look at a building, do you ever think about who the purchasing agent is? Of course not. When you look at a building, you only care about the architect or the designer. Perhaps you'll care about the lead engineer on this engineering marvel. Or you'll wonder about who the construction company is who built it. Who remembers in a building the chief procurement manager and says, wow, that guy, he was pretty amazing. He purchased things well. We don't remember those guys. But that's exactly what the Lord wanted David to do. To simply procure all the materials that Solomon, his son, would need to build a temple. In this seemingly menial job, surprisingly, David treats it with great joy. He has the privilege of gathering the supplies for a future building project. It seems, as the chronicler puts it in First Chronicles, that this is one of the highlights of David's life. If you were to interview David today and ask him, what is one of the highlights of your life on earth? He would say, the privilege of being able to collect the material for someone else to build the temple. And now he has done just that. And now he's going to lead the people in the worship of God. And how he leads the people in the worship of God will serve as an example and draw out a principle for how we are to practice the spiritual discipline of worship. And before we look at verse 10, can I give you my definition of worship? And here is the overriding principle which we will extrapolate from verses 10 to 13. Worship is expressing adoration 
for who God is and thanksgiving for what He has done. Worship is expressing adoration for who God is and thanksgiving for what He has done. It is because of who God is and what He has done that causes man to glorify and exalt Him, the greatness of who He is, and to thank Him for the grace and mercy for what He has done in your life. Worship can be expressed in many ways, and we're going to talk about six of them from the following verses after verse 14. But for the meantime, we want to focus on this overriding principle that worship is expressing adoration for who God is and thanksgiving for what He has done. Look at verse 10 with me. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. David begins this worship by expressing who God is. He remembers God as the God of their forefathers, the one who is eternal, who has existed from eternity past to eternity future, forever and ever. I want you to think about that. The one we worship has lived before time. Before time even began, He was there. God has always existed in perfect triune harmony. It's hard to wrap our heads around this truth that God has lived forever. But the more you think about it, the more you are perplexed. But it's a good thing. It's good that you cannot wrap your head fully around the person of who God is. Because as someone has said, if you can explain everything about who God is, then He is no longer God. It's pretty amazing to think about that God is so amazing, so big, so magnificent that we in our limited human minds cannot fully understand Him. Don't try to put God in your box. He is beyond the box that we put Him in. Apart from God revealing Himself to us in special revelation like the Scriptures, we cannot know Him, and we cannot know Him fully. And that's what David is trying to express in words. A God who lives forever and ever. Look at verse 11. He continues, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Here David declares God's greatness, God's power, God's glory. It's only His how dare mankind would even take a part of God's glory and God's power, knowing that with one snap of his proverbial fingers, we would drop dead. The greatest athlete, the greatest businessman, the greatest leader can all suddenly have an aneurysm or cardiac arrest, and that would be the end of his life. Men and women who think that they are so great and so powerful to take that which alone belongs to God better be careful this is what David acknowledges, declaring that all greatness, all power and glory are God's. We dare not take any of this and put it upon us. That thought should certainly keep us humble. And then David continues and says, everything on earth and in heaven is His. It all belongs to Him. We are simply given the privilege of stewarding that which belongs to God. That should be our attitude as we worship God every day. We are the faithful stewards of what is God's and His alone. He is letting us borrow what is His. You know, it would be silly 
if someone lends you something and you go around town claiming it's yours. If someone were to lend you a Rolls Royce, a luxury car, and you drive it around town claiming it's yours and, and proud of it and, and flaunt it as if it is yours, we would characterize that as you living in delusion. You are living a delusional life. Because it's not yours, and yet you claim it is yours. But think about what we do with the things we believe we own in this world. We go around saying, well, it's mine, it's mine. It's not really yours. Now, you can get in a legal argument with me that, no, this really does belong to me. I've got a title to my property. I've got a title to my car. The bank says it's mine. You can play that game. Yes, I, I, I understand legally it's yours as it relates to human civil law. But try having that argument with God to tell him that that which you have is yours. You have that argument with God, you're going to lose. There was a man who did just that. Remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar? King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, who looked over one night his vast empire and basically declared that all of these were his and the work of his own hands, taunting God and saying, it's mine. And at that height of pride, God said, well, you know what? I want to remind you it's not yours. And in that moment, the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel, God turned him into a madman, and he became like an animal. And history corroborates this, because in about a year and two years' time segment, you don't see Nebuchadnezzar's name written about in the annals of Babylonian history. His name is wiped out. You want to play this game with God? God says, let me tell you who really owns everything. David acknowledges this. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. The worship of God should be endless in our lives because of just how supreme and amazing God is. And that should give us pause when we disregard Him the way we do and claim we have nothing to worship God for. We worship God for who He is. Look at verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. After the declaration of who God is, David now talks about what God has done. He talks about riches and honor coming from God, and the implication from verse 12 is that it has now been extended to King David, which it has by God's grace. And the God who has the power and the majesty and the might has chosen to make great David, again by His grace. And David is now worshiping God for what he has done. God's power is seen throughout the Scriptures and seen throughout human history. But His ability to bless people and make them successful is by His grace. Look at Joseph. Look what God can do to a person whom he extends his grace to. Joseph, from prisoner to prime minister in just a few minutes. Daniel, from a relative nobody in the Babylonian kingdom to the second and third highest in command of the Babylonians and the Persian kingdoms. Think about Queen Esther. 
plucked out from relative obscurity in the courts of the Persian king to now being the queen of Persia and saving her people. And we can go on and on, people like Abraham and Ruth, all chosen by God's grace. And that's what he does with you and me. The difference between you and a beggar on the street is not because you're smarter than them. It's because of the grace of God where he decides to give a little bit of his power and greatness to you. The fact that you do not live in abject poverty in Africa or in South America, but have a very modest, comfortable life today is only because of God's grace. To give you the enablement to do what you are doing, to give you the breath of life, we should be worshiping God for what He does for us every day. That even if you can't think of anything to praise Him for, the fact that you have what you have is because of His grace in your life. How can you not express worship to Him every morning that you wake up with a roof over your head and a meal prepared for you, ready for you to start the day? Worship is expressing adoration for who God is and thanksgiving for what He has done. And in recognition of these things, that's exactly what David does. Look at verse 13. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and Praise your glorious name. Now, therefore, in conclusion, because of who you are and what you've done, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you. If you say there's no reason to worship God, then you better think again. You better really process why you have what you have and how you are able to do what you do. All because of the grace of God. The majesty of who he is. He didn't have to give anything to us, but yet he chooses to bless us. Now, in the following verses, from verses 14 to 20, there are six expressions of worship. There are more, but look with me at verse 14 for our first one. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims, before you, as were all our fathers, our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. David says that the Lord has given him the privilege and given the people the privilege to give back to the Lord what is his to be able to supply the temple materials. It's all God's anyways. And to be able to give back what is his is an honor to David. You see, the first expression of worship, you're taking notes, number one, is giving. Expression of worship, number one, giving. When we give of our time, when we give of our talents, when we give of our monies, when we give of our resources, it is a way in which we worship. But a lot of people don't think of giving as a way of worship. You know, they think that when they give, the receiver should be eternally grateful, right? So if we give someone something, they should be profusely thanking us because we have blessed them. But that way of thinking does not apply as it relates to God. 
in the worship of God, we should be thankful that we have something that is belonging to God. We should be thankful that we have something to offer back to Him. Let me ask you a question. Hopefully, it will make it more clear. Would you rather have nothing so that you don't have to give, or would you rather have something so that you can give? Right? A lot of people, I don't want to give. It's so hard. Okay. God can say, fine. I won't give you anything so that you don't have to give. Or would you rather have something so that you can give? I bet you put in that scenario, we'd all choose, Lord, give me something so that I can give to you. So remember, when it comes to the expression of worship as it relates to giving, it's because God has given us something that we have the privilege of giving Him back what is really His in the first place. That's what exactly what David is saying here in verses 14 and 15. And you know, the, the wonderful thing is, because of the grace of God, He tells us that when we give to Him, He will give more to us. Not necessarily in monetary ways, but in blessings that we can't even count. And yet how funny it is that we still have to think about it. You know, when I ask my children sometimes to share with me their snacks uh, and food, uh, sometimes they say, well, Dad, it's ours. I say, you know, but it's, I'm so hungry and, and Mommy won't let me buy any junk food. Um, so can you just let me borrow your bag of chips and I'll go to the store tomorrow and I will pay you back? And their answer is often still no. Then I say, okay, how about this? If you let me have your bag of chips now, tomorrow I'll buy you five bags of chips in return. I just have to have it, you know, that craving in the evening. And then they reply, we'll, we'll think about it. <laughs> it's silly, isn't it? I'm going to give you five bags of chips to make up for the one I'm eating. But that's the same way we treat God. We, we, we tell God, God, you, uh, yeah, I know you're going to give me more, but let me just think about it. He gives us so much, and we're so stingy with Him. And then we forget that it is in giving that we express our worship for who He is and what He has done. Something for us to think through as we say we worship God. Look at the second expression of worship, verse 16. Oh, Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand. And is all your own. Here, number two, expression of worship number two, serving. While David himself would not build the temple, many who were gathered there would be involved in the building project under Solomon. They have given and now they are prepared to build the temple. They're ready to serve. Their expression of worship is to serve God by soon building the temple. And serving God can take many different forms, as you know. And however you serve, it is an act of worship. I hope you were able to come to our community fair yesterday. I just love seeing the hundreds of men and women who work behind the backgrounds to serve the church community, to serve those who step foot into the church for the first time, to serve those who had been away from us for a long time. Know that your serving of others in serving the Lord is an act of worship. So yesterday, I could say, was a wonderful worship service. 
Yesterday was a wonderful expression of worship as we came together as a church community. Because an expression of worship is serving. The third expression found in verse 17, look with me. I know also, my God, that you test the heart, and note this, and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. In verse 17, we find another expression of worship, and it surprises us because this third expression of worship is righteousness. Number three, righteousness. Living righteously and uprightly is a way we worship God. David expresses that this is what the Lord takes pleasure in. He is happy in those who live an upright heart. God examines the heart. That's what he says there. You test the heart and you are happy. You are joyful in a worship that comes when it is coupled with holy living. He loves the worship of people when they live a righteous life. And yet, when the people gave the material, David said it must have been coupled with a heart that is upright. That is why God is pleased. My friends, listen carefully. If you are singing audibly this morning in worship, or you are serving, or have served, or you're giving as, a, as an expression of worship, and your heart is full of sin, and it is not right before God, then God does not accept your worship this morning. I know those are hard words, but that is the reality of how a holy God receives or rejects the praise of His people. He's looking, the Bible says, in your hearts. And He's looking to see if the inner life matches the outward expression. It's the same as if this Christmas, you are exchanging gifts, and you have a gift for your sibling, and you say, here is your gift. Take it. Mom made me get something for you. Now, if you were to look at that picture, and I were to ask you, is that a picture of giving? Most of you would say, well, by technical definition, yes. But the attitude is all in the wrong place. That's not really giving. So it is in the worship of God. If we're here praising God, lifting up our hands in praise and adoration, expressing ourselves visibly, but we're living in sin, it is not accepted by God. That's why when we worship, you should come with prepared hearts. Come early when it is still quiet. In the prayer of your heart, ask God to cleanse your heart so that when you offer Him worship corporately, it is coupled with a heart that is holy. I like what Chris Tomlin, the songwriter, once wrote, worship for God isn't moved by the quality of our voice, but by the condition of our hearts. Isn't that great? Worship. For God isn't moved by the quality of our voice, but by the condition of our hearts. That's why for those of you who join our choirs, you know that one of the requirements is that you come to worship regularly when you're not singing. 
even when you're not singing. Because just because you have a beautiful alto voice, just because you can harmonize with your tenor, God isn't moved by the quality of our voices. He is moved by the condition of our hearts. He's looking for righteousness. Verse 18. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. Look what David says here. That in their worship, his prayer for the people is that the hearts of the people will be fixed towards you. It means always looking at the Lord. In other words, the desire of David is that they are loyal, a heart of loyalty. You see, you express worship, number four, when you show loyalty to Him. The fourth expression of worship, loyalty. If you're going to say that you really worship someone, you have to show yourself to have been loyal and are loyal to them. Take, for instance, if I were to put you in ancient China, and you have an audience before the emperor, and you come before the emperor, and you praise him, and you bow, and you tell him how great he is, but in the back you have pledged your allegiance to one of the generals who are trying to overthrow him. We would look at that picture and say, well, that is the height of hypocrisy. But in the same way, if you say you're worshiping God, but you have a heart that's focused on the world, you have adulterated yourself to the things of the world, then what you express is not worship, it's just empty words. And loyalty is something our generation has forgotten because we're so easily swayed by the world, not having any firm convictions. But when God looks to see if we're really worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, He is looking to see if we have been loyal to Him. What is more important to Him is our continual focus on Him rather than any one singular act of expression of worship. Would you call it loyalty if for six days in a week you're living the ways of the world and then one day of the week, like a Sunday morning, you come and you say, praise be to God. That doesn't seem very loyal. When for six days you express praise to the world and for one day you express praise to God. And then you walk away patting yourself on the back, wow, I have just worshipped God. God is shaking His head, thinking, where is the loyalty? We should be expressing our worship of Him every day for six days with this first day of the week as the climax of that expression of praise and worship every day. Oh, we could only take attendance at church. We can't. But if you were to personally take an attendance chart of your own life in how you have come to church, would your chart yell out loyalty? Or would it look pretty spotted? Would you be able to present that quote-unquote attendance chart, although we're not trying to get legalistic, but would that represent a heart of loyalty to the one you say you worship? We've talked about this. 
there are so many other things that always are more important than the corporate worship of God, much less the individual worship of God in our daily, everyday devotions. That it's a flexible schedule when it comes to God. And then we have the audacity to say we have worshipped God when we, as verse 18 says, have not fixed our heart towards Him. We have cheapened the word worship. True worship comes when loyalty is expressed to the Lord. Look at verse 19 with me. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart. Note this. To keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Here David has a prayer for his son Solomon that his son would more than simply be loyal to him, which is important, but that he would, in the expression of his loyalty, be obedient to God's commandments and principles. You see, the fifth expression of worship is obedience. Obedience. Solomon's prayer would be that his son Solomon would obey God's commandments and principles. Obedience, if you've never thought about it, is an expression of worship. You don't have to be at the church all the time to worship God. You don't have to live here. You just have to live your life in the obedience to God's Word. That is your act of worship. What does Romans chapter 12 verse 1 say? You know the verse well. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul says the same thing about offering one's life in obedience as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. This is your act of worship. Listen carefully. It's not necessarily in our outward action that God receives our worship. It is in the internal obedience to what he says that we worship him. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have two children. Which of these children honor you more? You have one child who lives a crazy life, doesn't listen to what advice you've given him, goes, sleeps around, has a child out of wedlock, is in the bars and gambling all day, all night. He's made it in life, a lot of friends, not great friends, but just lived a crazy life. He is the talk of the town. There's much gossip about him, not good. And then, out of the blue, he comes one day, after 20 years of living like this, and he says, parents, I want to honor you. I want to buy you a new car. Versus another child, your second, who's obedient, lives a normal and quiet life, doesn't give their parents any headache, but doesn't buy their parents a car. You as a parent, which child honors you more? I think you get my point. As it relates to God, God doesn't want your extravagant expressions of audacious emotive worship when you live the life that you do. 
He just wants your silent obedience. That's your act of worship. So it doesn't matter whether you lift your hands or not. It doesn't matter whether you've memorized the songs. It doesn't matter how loud you sing. It doesn't matter your audacious emotive worship when you are not obeying Him. Because the Bible says very clearly, not only in this chapter, but throughout the Scriptures, that God prefers always obedience. It is surprising that there are many expressions of worship that deal with the inner human heart. Finally, verse 20, look with me. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. It is now here in verse 20, the final expression of worship as David commands the people after expressing their internal heart condition towards worship that they are now to express worship through words. When we think about worship, we think it is about the expression of worship through words. That's the first that comes to mind. But here words can refer to words in song, when we sing, words spoken, whether in prayer or in speech, words read aloud, we read scripture. But now it is when their hearts are in the right condition that David encourages them to express their worship of God, number six, in words. And they do so with the right attitude of humility. Look at the position of their worship as they speak forth these words of worship. It is prostrated. That means they fell to the ground, heads bowed. That's why we can say that if we practice the spiritual discipline of worship, not necessarily in this action, but it will remind us daily that we are definitely not first. Because if you are truly worshiping God in the way it is meant to be, you will certainly put yourself out of the way. How we love to impress others with our words. How we forget that the only words that we need to speak in worship is the one who looks both at the words and at the heart to make sure that the words that come out of our mouth match the heart condition. You see, there's a lot of people who sing beautifully. They speak eloquently. They express themselves beautifully. But they're not really worshiping because they would never, overwhelmed by what God is doing in their life and who He is, prostrate themselves in the action of what the people do because their hearts are not humble. When we talk about worship, it goes beyond what we do on a Sunday morning. It is a true, reflective adoration of who God is and a genuine thanksgiving for what He has done. And it begins with an internal heart 
that is holy, that is loyal, and that is obedient, and then expressed in words, service, and giving. May the worship of God's people this morning be such that God accepts it, not only because He deserves it, but because His true worshipers are worshiping in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your words. It is a reminder that many of us, when we worship, only go through the motions. Help the worship that comes and emanates out of Grace Christian Church be a worship that is genuine, not for show, but only for the audience of one, that it is your approval, your joy, your happiness that we seek. Father, if we have failed you in how we worship, playing the biggest game of hypocrisy, forgive us than you do through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of worship. May we do it often because it took the life of your son Jesus to give us this privilege to be able to come before the throne room of grace. And for that we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.